This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Good evening. I'm, I'm Bradley Graham. I'm the co-owner of Politics and Prose, along with my wife, Lisa Muscatine. And on behalf of uh, everybody at PNP, uh, welcome to the Lincoln. Uh, a, a word. Of, thank you. Thank you. A, a word of thanks first to the to the folks here at uh, at Lincoln Theater for making this wonderful venue uh, available, um, and thanks to all of you for for not only supporting our our featured uh, author this evening, but also for for buying your book through a, a local independent bookstore. So we're, we're here this evening, of course, to celebrate a new novel by uh, ta Coates, uh, and it's uh, truly an, an amazing tale. Uh, I know it, it just came out uh, a few days ago, so many of, you, many of you probably haven't had a chance to, to read The Water Dancer yet, uh, but, but be assured that you're in for a, a truly enthralling experience. Uh, the novel, which offers a bracingly original vision of the world of slavery, is written with a, a narrative force of a, of a great adventure and also reflects ta talent for, for racial and, and social analysis. Now, I had, um, I had jotted down a, a, a few more uh, a paragraphs here about ta own remarkable rise to, to becoming one of the most influential public intellectuals of his generation, uh, how through various types of writing, first journalistic articles and essays, then several acclaimed book-length works of nonfiction, even some comic book series, and now a stunning novel. How through all of that, Ta-Nehisi's uh, deeply explored contemporary racism, the legacy of slavery, and the darker aspects of American history and policy. Uh, but he's a humble guy, and he's, uh, he's told me that uh, he'd appreciate a very short intro. So I, I'm not going to go on uh, uh, more about him except to say that uh, you can read uh, much more about his Im impressive life in a number of, uh, of profile pieces that have appeared in uh, the New York Times and Vanity Fair and, and elsewhere. ta will will come on stage here in, in a second uh, to read a bit, and then he'll be joined for a conversation with Ibram uh, uh, Kendi. Uh, Well, as you, uh, as you evidently know, he's a, he's a prominent young historian at American University who, like, who, like Ta-Nehisi, has written eloquently and authoritatively about racism, also about anti-racism. Uh, one of uh, Ibram's books, Stamped from the Beginning, which traced the history of racist ideas in America, won the National Book Award for Nonfiction the year after Ta-Nehisi's Between the World and Me received that prize. And Ibram's latest book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which uh, came out uh, just last month, is a powerful, penetrating, and, and personal extension of his previous work. Uh, having him here to engage with Ta-Nehisi uh, makes for an even more special event. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Ta-Nehisi Coates. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was, um, I was. <laughs> it's good. You know. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that is, that is more on theme uh, than, than you would think for what I'm about to say. I was um, on my way here in the car and I happened to, you know, I was driving down U Street and I saw the line um, snaking around the building. And it, it put me in the mind of when I was a, a student back at Howard University, you know, who wanted, um, <laughs> who wanted nothing more than to be a writer. And the idea that, you know, it would ever, you know, come to this um, at, at any point would have just been, you know, mind blowing. Um, I, I can remember, you know, reading a, a James Baldwin or reading a Toni Morrison or F. Scott Fitzgerald. And, and I guess because at that point, you know, I was so into poetry, I should actually, you know, include some poets, Robert Hayden, Yusef Kumanyaka, uh, Lucille Clifton, et cetera. And I just remember thinking, why can't I do that? <laughs> you know, as, as most, most young writers do. And at Howard, I, I was fortunate because I had uh, a peer's, uh, who helped, you know, just guide me, you know, who I could talk to, you know, about writing, you know, fellow writers. Um, but I, I also had, had mentors, and I, I was told, and I can't see anything, so I don't know where he is, but I was told that I had uh, one, one of my most influential mentors is actually in the audience tonight, Ethelbert Miller. And so Ethelbert, <laughs> wherever, wherever you, I still, I mean, so many people, so I still can't see. Somewhere, all right, okay. I can't see him, but he's, I think he's in that direction. <laughs> but I, you know, I just wanted to say to Ethelbert that this would not be possible without him. Um, Ethelbert, uh, would, would, you know, he had this office at the top of Founders Library, and I would go up and I would write, you know, just drop off my poetry, and he would critique the poetry. But more importantly than uh, critiquing the poetry, he would read the poetry and then say, you need to read this. And this was the classroom outside of my classroom. And dare I say, and I'm, I'm so glad my son isn't here because I don't want him to hear this, but, but dare I say the classroom outside of my classroom was more important than the classroom. Um, and Ethelbert was, you know, just, just a, a tremendous, tremendous guy. And so I have great difficulty imagining myself um, at this moment w w without uh, people like Ethelbert and without Ethelbert specifically. Um, having said that, so the book, uh, The Water Dancer, uh, the Water Dance is a story of Hiram Walker, who's an enslaved uh, African-American uh, in 19th century antebellum America who wants what uh, four million or his four million fellow enslaved African-Americans in that period wanted uh, freedom. Hiram's story is coming to understand that that freedom, his freedom, is in fact not just a matter of his own individual efforts and his own individual desires, but it's in fact tied to the freedom of other people. At a certain point uh, in the novel, and I'm, I'm trying to be really careful here, I don't wanna spoil any of you guys. I was with uh, David Blight in Philly two nights ago, and, and thankfully he was so excited about the novel, but he kept spoiling things, and the audience started booing. <laughs> so, so I don't wanna get booed up here tonight. <laughs> but there is slavery in this novel. <laughs> And regrettably, there's slavery at the end of the novel. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That was a great revelation. Um, 
So there's a point in which, you know, Hiram is, is enslaved and he's being used by some people who have him in, in, in their clutches. And they're basically, you know, using him for the purposes of amusement, as it appears to him. He would uh, be released. Hey, how you doing, Lola? How are you? I just saw one of my mentees. Sorry. I can't see anybody else. And then I saw her. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, she's looking up. Lola's looking up at me. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> and I embarrassed the hell out of her, so. <laughs> anyway, Iram's um, basically being used for, the, for what appears to him for the purposes of amusement. And he's released every night. Uh, with other enslaved people, um, and he's basically being hunted. And he's coming to understand uh, the secret or the power that he possesses that will allow him to escape uh, uh, his captivity and escape at this moment the hunt. Um, I won't tell you what that power is, but um, I'll read from it. And this is towards the end of his, his captivity in this uh, particular uh, portion. But I grew stronger. I grew faster, and this began not with the body, but with the mind, for I found that when in the right mind, I ran faster and farther, and if I were ever to win this twisted game, I would need all the assets I could manage. And so in my mind, I began to call out the very anthems that Lim and I had exchanged that last holiday. Going away to the Great House Farm, going on up where the house is warm, when you look for me, Gina, I'll be far, far gone. The song powered me, for it reminded me of Lim and Holiday, Thena and Sophia, and all of us gathered together, even in the darkness, some part of me smiled. And I felt freedom, brief as it was in those nights of flight, even as I was hunted. I felt it in the cold wind cutting against my face, the branch scratching my cheek, the mud under my brogans, the heaving heat of my breath. No Maynard yanking at me, no trying to discern the motives of my father, no creeping fear of Corrine. Out here, it was all so clear. In running, I felt myself to be in a kind of defiance. And I was growing crafty. I remember being out one night for what must have been hours, and I knew that it had been hours because by the time they'd finished with me and hauled me back, pummeled and beaten to the ordinary man, I saw something incredible, the sun rising over what I could now see as green hills. And remembering the promise made to me of freedom, I knew that I was close. I learned to cover my tracks, to double back over them so as to confuse my captors and learn too that I could track them as sure as they tracked me. And I realized that I had a gift that I could bring to bear, my memory. It was always the same crew and they were unoriginal in their workings. Memorizing the terrain and their habits gave me a sudden advantage. I would find my way to their flank. One night they split up. I felled one and then pummeled another. They gave me an extra hard licking for that one and I was forced to confess the limits of this operation. I was running when what I needed was to fly. And not just in my mind, but in this world, I needed to lift up away from these low whites as if as I had lifted up away from Maynard, lifted up, away from the river. But how? What was the power that could pull a man out of the depths, that could pull a boy out of the stables and into the loft? I began to reconstruct the events 
Both of these uncanny moments had featured blue light, and both had brought me in different ways close to my mother or to the dark hole in my memory where I had lost her. The power must have some relation to my mother, and I needed the power because I needed to fly or I would die trying to outrun the wolves. Maybe the power was in some way related to the block in my memory, and to, and to unlock one was perhaps to unlock the other. And so in those dark and timeless hours in the pit, it became my ritual to reconstruct everything I had heard of her and all that I had seen of her in those moments down in the goose. My mother, Rose of the Kindest Heart. My mother, Rose, Sister of Emma. My mother, Rose, the Beautiful. My mother, Rose, the Silent. Rose, the Water Dancer. It was a cloudless night and I was running. I could feel that it was now spring for the nights were no longer so fierce upon me. My heart no longer pounded against my chest as I ran. My legs were fluid and the men must have known this for I had, no for I had noticed that they had increased their numbers. And whereas before they would split up to pursue the whole line of fugitives, I now began to feel that the entire team was focused on me above all others. So it was that night that I heard them closing in and then the forest opened up and I saw a pond glistening wide and dark. I had to make an effort around the water. I could hear the cries and the whoops of the men behind me. I pushed around the pond as hard as I could, the voices of the men steadily closing and I dared not look back. And then my foot caught on something, a branch or root, I cannot be sure. And a sharp pain, an old pain shot up through my ankle. I felt myself falling and then I was down in the fens and I felt the cold, muddy water on my face. I crawled for a moment, but delirious with pain and knowing the hunt was now over, I called out, but this time, not in my mind, but out loud for all to hear. Going way down to the Great House Farm, going up, but won't be long. Be back, Gina, with my heart and my song. What did the men pursuing me see in that moment? Did they even hear me calling out? They were right on me, ready to lay on hands, perhaps reaching out just as that moment. Did they see the air open up in front of them, the blue light of all our stories knifing through the world, illuminating the night? Thank you. It was riveting, wasn't it? So y'all are in a treat. For those of you who haven't had the ability to read this book, you're certainly in for, for a treat. Uh, I've, I think, had the honor to, to read this book. Um, and, you know, in many ways, I was blown away, particularly as an historian. And because when we read books that deal with African-American history, I can't just help but put on my historian's hat. And, <laughs> and in many ways, this was simultaneously a novel of 400 plus pages, as well as a thousand word history of, of slavery, mm. simultaneously. And, and I think certainly that research uh, showed. 
And, and I just want to sort of say very quickly that, you know, I'm not going to give away any of the plot lines, so you don't have to boo me like, you, like they did David <laughs> in Philly. But there were so many powerful messages that came across in this book, um, not only about the sort of inner life of slavery and resistance, but even sort of basic human messages and ideas and wisdom that I wanted us to sort of talk about. So because of that, I'm not going to give away, again, any of the plot lines. I will read a few passages, if that's okay, uh, to really frame the question. Is that okay? I don't want to get booed for that. Is that, is that cool? Um, because to me, right... I shouldn't I have just, told that story. I just did, I, you know... Got him shook now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to get ran off stage, you know what I'm saying? Because uh, to me, the power of this book is in these messages. And I just want to make sure that when you read, and I'm assuming every single person in here is going to go and start reading this book, if you haven't already, I just want to make sure you don't miss the power of some of these, of these messages. The first I'd like to sort of talk about is this sort of message that you continuously sort of told in the text that from the perspective of enslaved people, they felt they had to be better than them, mm -hmm. them meaning slaveholders. And so like on page 35, you state, we were better than them. We had to be. Sloth was literal death for us. While for them, it was the whole ambition of their lives. And then also on page 65, 63, and you're describing slaveholders, and you say that they were young and stupid and old and frail, and, and that their powers were all fiction. They were no better than us, and in so many ways, worse. And then finally, you state on 155, and this is sort of talking about a central white abolitionist character, and you state, the novel states that power makes slaves of masters, for it cuts them away from the world they claim to comprehend. Mm -hmm. But I have given up my power. This is a white abolitionist speaking. But I have given up my power, you see, given it up, so that now I might begin to see. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to emphasis, emphasize this? I mean, I, I think... Um... I think it's um, in that book, uh, Been in the Storm So Long, Leon Litwack, and he has these amazing recollections of um, moments of um, emancipation, like the immediate reactions of, of black people the, the moment they, they figure out they're free. And um, some of that is incredibly humorous. <laughs> it's one I'm thinking of now, there's a woman, she's free, and you know, she's the masters perceive her as being a quote-unquote good slave. And the minute she's free, she, like, turns around, lifts up her dress, bends over and say, kiss, says, kiss my ass, mm -hmm. and walks off the plantation. Yeah. I'm not making that up. This is Leon Litwack's book. And actually, I jotted down some quotes of what free people say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, it's, it's, a, it's, um, and what, and then there's the reaction of the slaveholders where they realize how dependent they are. You know, mm -hmm. I'm talking about, you know, white women who worked in the house and realized they can't even boil, boil water now. Mm -hmm. um, I don't 
think people understand the extent to which um, the planner class specifically depended on enslaved labor. I mean, it was like everything. It was everything. You know, it was the, from the moment you got up, you know, there was always somebody attending to you a, a, along the way. Um, and so the moment that was taken away, you know what I mean? People found themselves, you know, it's like if you've never held a broom before, you know what I mean? You've never held, I mean, it didn't exist at that time, but a vacuum cleaner, a mop, et cetera. You know, you've never had to cook. You know, I mean, menial, basic things, all the way to, you know, much more complicated things. If you've never had to rot iron, if you actually don't know anything about, you know, woodworking, in fact. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, so there was always this dependency, actually, on the self-proclaimed master class upon the slaves. The slaves literally, literally knew more. You know, actually, in fact, knew more. And so I guess, like, when I imagined it it, it, it struck me as pretty clear because, you know, you do the research and then you try to put yourself in that moment yeah. that the enslaved would have known that and would have been very, very much aware of the extent to which people who constructed themselves as masters were, in fact, slaves of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, that was, like, really, really, really important to, to, to get across, I thought. Yeah, and just, to, I guess, to reinforce that, in 1865, when, when freedom came, it was said to enslaved people that, oh, you're not going to know how to take care of them right. yourself. And so one free person responded, we used to support ourselves and our masters, too, when we were slaves, and I reckon we can take care of ourselves now. <laughs> and... <laughs> And so, yeah, they, I mean, we have all sorts of evidence demonstrating that, that yeah. they precisely knew that. Secondly, the, I think you were very sort of clear in, in not only sort of demonstrating, as you called it, that, that slaveholders were dependent on slavery, mm -hmm. but then also the sort of distinctions of feeling. Mm -hmm. and, and so how the enslaved feel, felt, particularly in a sort of jubilant or positive or complex way was something that the slaveholder was seeking and could never touch. To give an example, you state, um, you're narrating a huge feast and jubilant celebration of music and dancing, and, and it states, there are moments like this, and here was not the first, when I understood why they wear on us so why they chain us, beat us, rape us, hate us. And what I understood was that they would never have this. For all their power, their guns, their could, they could never get this feeling. Mm -hmm. What was that feeling? Yeah, I mean, that relates back to the first quote. I mean, yeah. if you are so alienated from, from the earth, if you are so alienated from everyday experiences, you know, um, the whole point of, of slaveholding is to, um, on, on a mass level, is to kind of make yourself into a kind of god. So, so you know, as you know, Ibram, I'm, I'm not telling you anything here, but um, whiteness in antebellum America is constructed almost as, as a kind of divinity, being above. You know, you are, you know, Olympus and, and, and black folks are, are below. Um, and the only reason why you're Olympus is because black folks are below. I mean, the greatest example of this I, I, I think of, and 
you know, I'm just going to talk about this all through the tours. Like, I think about Monticello. I think about Monticello is literally built on a mountain. And it's actually built, although it's ostensibly a, a plantation and a farm, it's actually built on really poor farming land. Um, they don't have, you know, good access to water and wells. But Jefferson clearly was trying to, you know, construct himself as, as, as something higher than. Mm-hmm. And when I put myself there, and I, and I imagine constructing myself in that way, and I imagine not being connected to the daily, everyday struggles of life, it feels kind of joyless. Yeah. You know, like that, that you know, I, I don't, you know, I didn't read a slaveholder actually saying that, but I thought about it. Um, I obviously had in mind the extent to which African-American uh, music and dance and culture and arts in general has always had a hold on the white mind and it's always been a thing that they can't quite touch but want to touch, but just can't quite get to. You know what I mean? Um, to the extent that, like, um, it's, it's, it's described as though it, it, it's biological, but I don't, I don't think it's biological at all. You know, I think if you live, you know, in, in, in the down there, you know what I mean? If you put, you know, any group of people, you know, in a certain context and you do it over the course of centuries, um, they will have certain insights, you know, about the world, they have certain insights about humanity, they have certain insights about democracy and, 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 and about freedom um, that you can't get to without living down there, mm-hmm. without actually being, you know, in it. Um, so that, that was, you know, a really, really important thing to get across. The other thing is, you know, and I, and I said this last night, I'm just going to repeat myself here, you know, I, I think it's really important to understand that when we talk about black identity in this country, we're talking about two things. We're talking about a racial identity, i.e. the uh, idea of being put into a box, and in that box people do all sorts of horrible and hurtful things to you. And then we're talking about an ethnic identity, which is, you know, uh, uh, the food we eat, how we talk, how we interact with each other. Uh, when David Blight came on stage, as much as I, I, I love David Blight, I didn't dap him up and pat him up. That's not how I greeted David Blight. <laughs> I love David, too. There's no disrespect to David. You know what I mean? It's just that we're from, you know, we have an ethnicity in common. And so we have a way of greeting each other. I say all that to say that while we want and would gladly in a moment part with our racial identity, we do not want to part with our ethnic identity. <laughs> our ethnic identity is our goal. <laughs> you know, we're not giving Kendrick back. You know what I'm saying? Like We're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so whenever I write, it's important to get that across. It's important to get that ethnic, you know, that, 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 that there's something joyful that black people, you know, even in, in the midst of trying to get rid of the oppression, they, they're trying to hold on to something and, and protect something too. And it's interesting you say that because the next thing I want to talk about was your use of work songs. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I've read a lot of novels on slavery and... I was so pleasantly surprised mm. to see just how often you use work songs. Yeah. Um, because in many ways, for those novelists who haven't regularly used work songs in a novel that really talks about the inner life of slavery, that's equivalent to like somebody writing a novel of our generation and right. never using hip hop. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, exactly. that's literally the song. Right you know, of that time. And, and, and so was that the reason why you, you decided to use? No, I, I got to be honest with you. In another draft, they weren't there. And um, 
It's very, but listen, listen, it's very important that I don't take credit for that. Because I don't, I don't know um, how many young writers or, you know, um, kids who hope to be writers are in the audience. But, you know, um, this is the importance of editors. Yeah. This is because you can't, you can't see everything yourself. And Chris Jackson, who's our mutual editor, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, shout out to Chris. Shout out to Chris. Said, <laughs> said listen, I, I think, like, we yeah. need some more texture of the world yeah. in here. You know, how did it sound? What did they sing? And it's not like I had actually thought about that. But I was like, man, it's a high chance of me getting this wrong. And so I had more avoided it, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I was just afraid. But he said, listen, it, we, you have to give us... Because there was singing and dancing in there. I just didn't quote any lyrics. It was like, you know, it was there, but I didn't actually have... And so, um, you know, I did what I probably should have done from Jump. You know, I went and did the research, mm-hmm. found some. And it wasn't enough to actually find them because they had to fit within yeah. Yeah. the actual text. You know what I mean? You can't just throw a work song in there. Um, and so... I, <laughs> Hey, it's a work song, you know, <laughs> can't do that. So I had to, you know, just sort of play with it. You know, I actually changed some words, some of it, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, but I, once I figured out the form and once I had it and to make it fit, it, it really, really enlivened it. For those of you who are doing the audio book, I mean, one of the cool things is we got Joe Morton to read. And when Joe does the work song, he starts singing, man. Oh, I'm not wow. doing that. <laughs> but <laughs> Joe sounds good, you know? <laughs> so I think... Very quickly, and I think this is probably pretty straightforward, but you named enslaved people the task. Right. And slaveholders the quality. Yeah. The reasoning behind that. Um, I uh, wanted to emphasize certain aspects of enslavement that I feel like don't always get enough attention. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when, um, and, you know, me and Chris, we, we talked about this a lot. Um, the notion is that you, you have to, and, and I, I believe I'm paraphrasing Toni Morrison here, but you, you got to make the world new in, in a novel. And so yeah. you have to make, you know, slavery or enslavement new. You can't read this novel and, like, think of, you know, roots or other depictions. You, not that there's anything wrong with roots, but it, roots already did roots. So there's no point in, <laughs> you know what I mean, re, redoing that. You know what I mean? Whoever, you know, there'll be, you know, obviously countless novels. It, it won't their vision of enslavement won't be this. It'll be something different, as it should be, as art should be. And so, <clears throat> for me, I was, I felt like when you hear the word slavery, you think about, you know, whips, chains, you know, you think about torture, you think about cotton. There's a set of images that come to mind that I was not particularly interested in in this work. What I was much more interested in was the way in which enslavement through its 250 years um, in this country or in this North American continent, how it functioned as a destroyer of black families for profit. That was really, really important to get home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to focus on that and to move away from some of the, the more visceral aspects of it, I found that I needed a new vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I had to change the lens, you know, uh, uh, a little bit. I also, and again, I said this yesterday, um, but <clears throat> I also felt like... Um, in addition to the vocabulary, there were deliberate choices made about how much and what kind of brutality to show um, because I felt like if you stress too much the viscerality of it, the people actually disappear. You know, um, if I have Hiram in a long whipping scene and it goes for like four pages, like you forget it's Hiram. And every time you see Hiram again, you see him being whipped. Like, you don't actually see him. 
you know, um, and he's not that scene. You know what I mean? He's something, any character is something more than the horrible thing that, that happened to them. And so there were all sorts of choices, you know, that I felt like I, I had to, to, to make to make that vision of enslavement new. Wow. Um, so I, I think you just said you talked about this sort of the way in which slavery was a destroyer of black bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what you Families. Also, families. Yes, yes, bodies too, but families. Um, and, I, you know, I think that that was, to me, one of the sort of hallmarks of this novel. Mm-hmm. And, and so, for instance, in 327, you, you write, better than before, that I understood the whole dimension of this crime, the entirety of the theft, the small moments, the tenderness, the quarrels and corrections, all stolen, so that men such as my father might live as gods. And so even more than families, mm-hmm. you wanted to sort of show how relations at its most basic level right. were constantly being broken. Was that part of the... Yeah, that's definitely it. I mean, uh, you're right. It's not just families. It's communities. It's, you know, a for-profit destruction of the communities. And, and as you know, I mean, that, that's rooted in the very historical reality of the intrastate uh, uh, slave trade. Yeah. Um, you had a, a period during the antebellum uh, uh, period in which um, America expanded, you know, through the theft of land, and America needed people to, to work that stolen land. Um, and so Virginia, which even up until the time of the Civil War, was always home to the largest population of, of enslaved people in this country, became a direct feeder to states like Mississippi, to uh, uh, states like Georgia, further west, states like Tennessee, Texas, Louisiana. Um, and so, you know, um, this is a very, very real history of black families and black communities, as you point out, being broken literally to, you know, make America. I mean, I, I'm, I'm dead serious about that, you know? I mean, people, like, that sounds like, you know, hyperbolic, but, but it's true. <laughs> it's true. It's, I mean, it actually happened. I mean, if you went to Mississippi, I tell people this all the time, if you went to Mississippi in 18... Uh, uh, 60 or South Carolina in 1860, the majority of people living in those states were enslaved. There's a reason those were the first two states to secede. It's not, those two facts are not coincidental. And so you, you try to imagine a Mississippi, a Louisiana, a, a Georgia uh, without enslaved people and, and a Virginia where the proportion was lower and you can't imagine it. it, it it's actually not possible. And I think in some ways, and I don't want to go too far with this, but I think in some ways that the viscerality obscures um, the, the great evil of destroying families for profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would argue that that, that, that policy of, uh, of, of family destruction, of black family destruction, uh, extends out <laughs> of slavery mm-hmm. yeah. into our politics today. You know, I mean, it, it, you see it in... Um, And, and this is an important point because there, there are certain people in politics who, who make a career out of wagging their finger at black families and, 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 and talking about family values and the lack of family values among black families while supporting a carceral system that, that just breaks families daily. Yeah. You know? Um, and 
as we know, that, that, that carceral system is built on, you know, whole other policies, you know, that came before it, you know what I mean, who's, who's you know, had as one of its central features the, the, the destruction of, of, of black families. Yeah, and I, I think that, I think in many ways we've spent, I don't think you can spend too much time on the transatlantic slave trade, right. studying it, writing about sure. it, but we've spent too little time, uh, too little books, too little novels, bringing to life what was known as the domestic slave trade. Right. And, and if there was ever a novel that really brings it to life, it's this novel. Mm. And, and, you know, even more than that, you know, it, it literally, this message of them taking from us, you know, the characters, the enslaved characters in the book constantly sort of, sort of talked about that. For instance, on page 43, but there was a weight. So this is Hiram, the main character, sort of, who is sort of sent to, to work in the house. And, and, and it stated, but there was a weight of being so close to them. Mm. The weight that Thena had tried to warn me about, but something more. The crushing weight of seeing how the quality truly lived in all their luxury and how much they really took from us. And, and this stealing, yeah. this plunder, is literally seemingly on in every sentence, on every page. I mean... Wait, can I say something about that? Sure. That's actually, uh, it's so funny. There are moments when, like, there's a lot, obviously, that's derived from history. Um, and then there are moments, and I'm going to get a little personal here. There are moments that are derived from my life and... You know, one of the things that I think about is I've been very fortunate as the result of my career as a writer. I had um, a really unpredicted, let's put it like this, an unpredicted bump in class status. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the most striking things when you have an unpredicted bump in class status <laughs> is you go places and I hope this doesn't come out wrong. You go places and you see the kind of white people that are in those places, places you could not go before. And I'm like, I had to win a national magazine award to get here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had to, <laughs> I had to. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I had to win a National Book Award. Somebody had to literally call me a genius. Like, he's a genius. Him. And then they were like, okay, you can come over here. You know what I mean? Like, you. And you get there, and it's like. Yeah, I know the. Wait, not only is it not all that, but the people ain't all that. (laughs) And look, and they're not. And they're not bad. They're not, you know what I mean? I, I don't want that to come out, but. You look at them and you think, if you were black. You know what I mean? Like, like if you were black, like, do you understand how high the chances that you would be in jail right now? <laughs> like, that you would have, you had to have a, had a kid at 15. Like, do, do you, like, like, do you get it? Like, and as a black person, I'll speak for myself. As a black person before, I had some theory of how unfair things were. Like, I just, you would look on TV and say, wow, this looks like 
like, I, I can't be sure, but this really looks off. <laughs> and then you get close to it, and you're like, if y'all knew how much they were taking, there would be a riot every week. Like, it would be, you know what I mean? Like, if I had known, and, and it gets, and sorry to go off on this, because I think about how much, like, we talk about, you know, we ain't doing this, and we could just do that, you know what I mean? We don't take care of this, we don't love each other, we don't do this. And then you get up there, and you see these people, and you're like, morality's for black people. You understand? Like, those values are for black people. They're for the weak, you know, because the cold truth is when you have money and you have power, what, what do you need of, of, of morality? What does Donald Trump need for morality? You know what I mean? Like, he became president. And Trump is just like a, a stand-in for, you know, a kind of, you know, mediocrity and ordinariness that, you know, you see across the board. And so... And look, it's not, you know what I mean? This is not, you know, because white people are white in the sense of, you know, being of European answer. This is how power works. This how, I'm sure there are plenty of women in the audience can talk about how hard they worked to get to a point. Then they looked at the dudes and was like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's how... And so that's what Hiram is saying. When he gets to that point, you know, he's been out in the field, you know what I mean? And, he, and then when he gets there, he's like, really? Like, you own people? You? <laughs> Mediocre you? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I think another passage <laughs> Yeah, I mean for, No, no like, one's recording this I'm sure it was yeah. tweeted out by now It's going to be on Instagram Somebody storied it already So Like one of the more powerful passages In, in the text Is When you narrate when Haram, when Haram, Hiram, Hiram, yes. sorry, it's all right. I was reciting Haram the whole time. Okay. <laughs> uh, when when Hiram determines that he's going to run, mm -hmm. I'm not giving away nothing. Okay, so, so please don't. Uh, <laughs> They're not going to boo you. And, <laughs> Maybe they are. I don't know. And so he said, "You, you narrate." This is Hiram saying this, and I think now that this was how the running so often begins, mm -hmm. that it is settled upon in that moment you understand the infinite depth of your peril. For it is not simply that you are captured by slavery, but by a kind of a fraud, which paints its ex executors as guardians at the gate, staving off African savagery, when it is they themselves who are savages, who are Mordred, who are the dragon in Camelot's clothes. And at that moment of revelation, of understanding, running is not a thought, not even as a dream, but a need. No different than the need to flee a burning house. And so, I, you know, when I read this, I sort of fast forward to today. And in many ways, I, I think this, this can be said of people today under the weight of white supremacy, mm -hmm. that those who are resisting have 
eventually recognized the depth of their peril, right. have recognized the fraud of white supremacy. Right. I mean, can this be connected through time? <clears throat> yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I started this book long before uh, Donald Trump, but that, that's the obvious allegory, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's you, you have a president. Um, exactly. <laughs> president. President. Um, who sits atop what we are told is the, the uh, um, um, pinnacle achievement of, of Western civilization, the United yeah. States of America. Mm -hmm. You know, quote-unquote, first enlightenment republic, guardian of democracy, and he's a savage. And if you... Um, <clears throat> and... and, and I mean, we can get the definition of savage for anybody who don't agree, you know. <laughs> I mean, and, and what, what, I mean, what, what can you conclude from, from, what else can you conclude from watching him? What else can you conclude from, from, from rallies where he urges on violence? I saw um, a video, and I hadn't seen this. I was on Democracy Now! about a week ago, and they showed a video of him. So, you know, he did the thing, he, there was this uh, black Republican, he called him My African American. Yeah. <laughs> so that dude left the party. He actually left. He's like, I'm, I'm done with this. <laughs> I gotta go, you know what I mean? He ran away. He ran away, he had to run. <laughs> he had to run. So, so then I was, but, but he was somewhere and he was talking about Hispanics and then there was this Hispanic dude in the audience and he called him my Hispanic and the dude was standing up and he was pointing at this dude, calling, like humiliating him. And the dude was smiling. And I was watching that thinking, no matter what, you're, I don't give you the most right-wing, right-wing, like, how could you let somebody humiliate you like that? But he regularly humiliates. I mean, that's what, you know, Donald Trump does, and he is the leader of this, you know, uh, uh, nation, this, this country, which tells the rest of the world that it is the guardian of all democracy. Yeah. You know, and, and, and if you're black, and you exist in a world where people have consistently, through your long tenure, in this country and on this continent told you that you are the embodiment of, of savagery, you yourself, while you're watching. Mm -hmm. You know, what's going on? And, and, and it's long been like that. You could have been, you know, uh, uh, during the tenure of Andrew Jackson and thought the same thing. Could have looked up and thought the same thing. You could have been on Monticello and watched Thomas Jefferson, who's brilliant, and for all of his, you know, great and profound words, and they are profound, is living off of the backs of enslaved people so that he can have another bottle of expensive, you know, French wine. And so at, at, at any moment, you could look up and, and, and see that. And so I, I feel like that that's a, a rather timeless mm -hmm. observation of, of, of the system of white supremacy. And probably, again, once again, any entrenched system of power. Because power has to justify itself. It has mm -hmm. to, you know, put on these, you know, silk garments and, and, and clothes to justify, you know, its, its brutality and mask its, its brutality. Precisely, yeah. They, they apparently have more because they are more. Right, exactly. Um, exactly. That's the argument. So to move a little bit away from white supremacy and racism and slavery mm -hmm. and, and something that... Now you're about to get booed. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I... <laughs> I'm not going to let that go. I, I thought, I mean, I thought your sort of narration of the love affair between Sophia mm -hmm. and Hiram. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I didn't say anything other than, there's a love story, and I thought y'all would like that. 
chapter. She's early. <laughs> like, seriously. So, so I mean, I, I think one of the, one of the, one of their points of confrontation mm-hmm. is over this construct we call now possessiveness. Mm-hmm. And how Sophia, essentially Hiram, wanted Sophia to be his own. And Sophia wanted to be with him, but simultaneously was like, I'm nobody's. Mm-hmm. And... Sharon ain't even read the book. <laughs> like the idea of that. And, you know, I think... Okay, I'm going to give away something really quick. Is that okay? <laughs> I was just playing. <laughs> no, I was just playing. Serious. So, why, I mean, you know, there's this running sort of interrogation right. of what we now call possessiveness right. through the text. And, and obviously, you know, most people who are married, they say, that's my wife, that's my husband, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my friend. Right. And, 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 and eventually, you critique that throughout the text. Mm-hmm. Why? Where did that... Um, that was probably like the hardest part to get right. Okay. Um, because I, I, I knew by the time I got to the final draft and I had rounded out the characters and everything, and I had you know figured out who Sophia was, who Hiram was, who Thena was, I, I knew I wanted to do that. But it was actually incredibly hard to, to execute. And um, I'll just say you know before I, I tell you why that we are in a moment where. People like to make jokes about, you know, diversity and sensitivity reading and da 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 da. No, I can just figure it out on my own. <laughs> you know, I can go in my white man room and then write and it'll be all fine. You know what I mean? And if you're triggered by that, that's your issue. <laughs> you know, um, but I think if you're going to write about experiences outside of your own, it might be good to have people from those experiences read. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't. I don't think that's a radical idea. When I did the case for reparations, I sent it around to a bunch of historians. There was history in there. I'm not a historian. I'd like to, you know what I mean, get, get their opinion on things. And so um, I, I say that to say that uh, I was very, very lucky because I, I had a challenge. And the challenge was I was trying to write Hiram. Like, I was trying to do exactly what you're talking about. But I was trying to write Hiram in the, the voice and having the mannerisms of a 19th century male and all the assumptions that, that he would have had. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't coming off right. And one of the reasons why I know it wasn't coming off right, because, you know, at One World, uh, working with Chris Jackson, we had, you know, two other editors, Nicole Counts and, and Victory Matsui, you know. Um, shout out to Nicole. Shout out to Nicole. And shout Victory. out to Victory. Um, <laughs> who obviously have much more experience. <laughs> with, you know, what, what I was trying to, to get at. And they read, and they, and they made it, you know, very clear where it was going wrong. We actually had, we had a whole meeting about this, man. Mm. I mean, they read it, offered comments. Then I came in, you know, and I said, okay, can you talk through and just, you know, help me out with what... I mean, we actually had a spreadsheet with chapter by chapter where they were like, you know what I mean? And some of the comments were quite angry. Um, <laughs> but that's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. It is. You know what I mean? This, this ain't foosball, baby. I mean, this is, this is, we're writing here. You know what I mean? Somebody might get hit. And 
that was good. That was good because I, need, I would rather hear it from them than it get out into the world. And then I have to, because I'm going to hear it <laughs> one way or the other. <laughs> so that was like one of the hardest. That was probably, you know, where, um, like there are lines in there I can take credit for, but to the extent that it comes off as rounded, to the extent that, that, that Sophia is, is, is rounded, that Athena is rounded, that the discussion around um, <clears throat> gender and her desire, as she says, um, what, I, 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 I know you want me to be yours. I've always known it, but to be yours, I can never be yours. Yeah, that was um, one of the most like, powerful lines of the- To the extent that that works, mm-hmm. um, I greatly benefited by having people who were much, much more familiar with that experience re- read the text. Mm-hmm. All right, so. <clears throat> so I think one of the more brilliant characters also of, of the text was you had a white woman abolitionist. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, you, you, you have the main character sort of describing her and other sort of white abolitionists. And, and just as context for this quote, the sort of main character views this white abolitionist as extremely brilliant and daring and all of the superlatives. But at one point, Hiram basically states, talking about her and and other white abolitionists, they scorned their barbaric brethren, but they were brethren all the same. So their opposition was a kind of vanity a hatred of slavery that far outranked any love of the slave. Yes. Were you sending a message to white America? <laughs> no. Okay. No. I mean, no, because you can't, you actually can't write like that. Like, you can't. I mean, you, you yeah. can't, you can't. Yeah. Um, because you, you risk them becoming, like, really, really didactic. Yeah. I, again, I mean... I think what is more the case is the very conflicts that we observe today were true back then. That's the thing. You know what I mean? And so, you know, Douglas could tell you about, you know, meeting plenty of people who believed in abolition nominally and would, you know, talk about abolition, but would do the most hateful and and, and racist things. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a point, you know, David David talks about this in his book where Douglas is feuding with uh, Garrison too, and too, and Garrison was basically his his mentor for a while and brought him into the abolitionist movement. And they're feuding, but they've they've you know gone a different size mm-hmm. to a feuding, and they start rumors about this white woman he's traveling with yeah. and their relationship, knowing full well what the implication is. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> Garrison was a great abolitionist. Can't take that away from him, and yet still in awe. You know, still in all. So, uh, you know, and, and, once, and once again, I really do believe that if we were talking about any liberation struggle in any other context, you would find the same. Yeah. You know, whiteness is just another word for, for power. It's, you know, one of the most extreme words for power that we have in, in this country. But, and I'm sorry I keep saying this, but it's, it's really, really important because the vocabulary of race has become... Um, we have so much assumed, even those of us who are good-hearted, that, that, that it's something biological, God-made, you know, natural, scientific, something that, you know, can't be undone when, in fact, it, it's just, these are just names for power. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I, I would think about that a lot. 
like I would think about, okay, what, what is, somebody has power over me and somebody comes from, you know, the class of the powerful. You know what I mean? How would this play out, you know? Wow. And, and I think, and so I think the message that I get from that, that, you know, it's, it's one thing to hate the concentration camps along the southern borders. Yes. It's yet another thing to love the people. Right. Who are currently incarcerated. Right. right. <laughs> Or, I mean, or, you know, uh, you know, related to, there are, are, we have now what, um, there are many people who see something wrong with the criminal justice system today. Mm -hmm. Do they love the people that are incarcerated, though? Yeah. There you go. There you go. So, another sort of critical element of the text is over the sort of meaning of remembering and not remembering. Mm -hmm. I'm not giving away anything. <laughs> but you'll see this as you read, right? And, and so in many ways, the main character doesn't remember something. Mm -hmm. And eventually, essentially, he's seeking to remember that. And that remembering that, of course, will, will help him sort of bring freedom. Right. And, and so in many ways is, I guess, one of the ways in which I read that, because I, I just couldn't stop sort of thinking about it, both from its time period, but also its relationship to today, is, is, is America's current inability, is, is this inability, is his inability to, to remember, like a metaphor for America's inability to truly remember slavery? Mm. I mean, if you say so. <laughs> and, and, and I mean that. I really, I actually do mean that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not being flip. I, I, I think um, one of the things, one of the cool things about writing literature, right, is that people will see things that maybe you didn't intentionally, you know, mm -hmm. put there. That's why you do it. I'm yeah. not, you know, mocking that. I'm not saying, well, I wasn't thinking that, therefore it's not valid. I'm saying that, you know, people see certain things. I, you know, when I thought about Hiram and not remembering and his ability to remember all sorts of trivial things, but mm -hmm. not remember the thing most essential. I, I was thinking about a trauma victim, mm. you know? Um, and mm. I was thinking about how, um, you know, and this is well known, you know, a, a, among African-Americans, how the generation that came out of enslavement, the last thing they wanted to talk about was enslavement. Yeah. Yeah. That, was, that was the last story that they, that they wanted to tell, that they wanted to relive for very, very good reasons, and for him for very, very good reasons. But in order to ultimately liberate himself, he has to face it. He has to face what was done. The mm -hmm. um, sad thing uh, is, at least by the logic of, of the novel, the enslavers are beyond remembering. Because if they remembered, they wouldn't enslave. It would be the immediate destruction of, of their entire class. And, he, you know, he says this at one. He says they, they can't remember because they have to not remember. Mm -hmm. They have to forget. It's a condition of their power that they forget. Because if they don't, you know what I mean, then, you know, if they remember everything that they've done and they remember that they've done it to actual human beings, how can they live, you know, as, as, as they are? You know, um, so they're, they're two different, uh, are related. maybe that, that, I guess, is a closer metaphor to America probably. Yeah. So I'm going to read a few of the questions that mm -hmm. came from the audience. Um, What's your plan for reparations? Is that the first thing? <laughs> <laughs> Is that in there? I didn't see any reparations. Okay. All right. I was What's your plan for reparations? Uh, 
So this one is, <laughs> what is your favorite book? Oh, man, I can't. I can't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I can talk about the most influential books on how I see the world and, um, and on this. And um, probably the most influential novelist on me is E.L. Doctorow, um, who is, this is just me talking, as far as I'm concerned, criminally, criminally underrated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is, you know, a, a, a work of fiction that takes place in, in a past era, and Doctorow was just, just a master of it, you know. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking about books like Ragtime, Billy Bathgate, World's Fair, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> The Waterworks. And these, these books had tremendous impact on me because I would read them and I would, I would feel like, you know, I could read as many history books as I could, you know, about the Ragtime era, but in, in the time of, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, but I, I mean, Doctorow just took me there. You know, I, I could feel it. I could smell it. I could, and he was probably the first person to unlock, um, for me, the power of, of, of putting people in, in history. He hated the term historical fiction. He just felt like he was a novelist, you know, and, and you know, he was writing about the past. So I don't know whether you can answer this question without explaining the book, but okay. I, think it's, I think it's a valid question. Okay. Can you please explain the title? Yeah, um, I can, I can. <clears throat> and I, I, what I'll give is I'll give the most simplest answer possible. Um, and as you read the book, you'll see that it's actually a, a deeper answer. Mm -hmm. But um, the simplest answer possible is, in, you know, in the course of working on the book, I had to do a ton of research um, on music and dance. And um, in the African-American community, during the era of enslavement, there was a thing they used to do called the water dance. And they would mm -hmm. put a vessel of water, you know, on their head, one person, and they would uh, be another person. They would essentially be like battling back and forth. And the person who first dropped the water out of the vessel would lose. Um, and that became a kind of metaphor for, for, for something that, that's in the book. Wow. So, you know, as a family rattler, I don't really want to ask this question, ask this question <laughs> but okay, okay. Um, but someone asked, what was the most impactful HU experience that, that helped shape your career? Oh, man, that's like the favorite book question. <laughs> I mean, it's sentimental and mawkish, but meeting my wife, I mean, that, that just is obviously. Oh. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in terms of my, my that, I mean, that, that has to be true. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just, yeah. that's a pretty obvious one. But yeah, that, that would probably be it. And then this one asked about the influence of your father. I guess they, mm -hmm. you know, you may want to read the, Be the Beautiful Struggle if you, I think, really want to get that sense. But if you could give us a snapshot of how much of an influence was and is your father on you and the path that you took in your life. Yeah, probably the biggest thing. My dad loved, loved loves books. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in a house covered with books. And it's tough for me to imagine being a writer without that. My mom told me to read at a really, really young age. Um, and so I had a, a heavy, heavy uh, intellectual exposure to books, particularly books about black people at a, at a really, really, really early age. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, you know, it's not a mistake that I, that I do what I do. And... So I'm going to say this one for last, but... Um, 
So you write at one point in the text, but we must tell our stories Mm -hmm. and not be ensnared by them. Was that one of the central messages of, of the book? Yeah, and I mean, again, that goes back to his trauma and having to recall something really, really, you know, painful. Um, it also is how, like, the gravity of memory works on you even when you try to forget it. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that you are trying to forget it does not mean it, it's not there. And for Hiram, the trauma that he's trying to rep- repress, it, it, it infects everything. Mm-hmm. It affects everything. You know, it, it affects his, you know, relationship with Sophia, his relationship with Thena, um, his notions of what freedom is, um, his early ambitions, how he feels about his dad. It's all there, the anger he feels towards his brother. You know, um, even as he can't recall exactly what, what happened, it's, a, it's like a black hole. You know what I mean? It's still exerting mm-hmm. a kind of gravity uh, on him. And since we have some more time, I, so there's a character in the text that I was just riveted by. Mm. Um, and the name of that character was Moses. Mm-hmm. Why the in- inclusion of that character in this book? Okay, so I'm going to have a basic rule. If it's been in the reviews, I'm going to say it. Because um, <laughs> it's actually out there. I, I, it would be, I, I wish that some of the reviews had not revealed so much, but... Um, it's, it's in the world. Um, <laughs> so I grew up, um, I'm, I'm, I'm from Baltimore. Uh, my family's from the Eastern Shore of Maryland. Um, if you grew up like I did in, in the 1980s, which is, I think, a particular point in terms of how black history is being taught in the schools, and if, if you grew up in Baltimore, um, there are two gods, and they are Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. Um, <laughs> And they're, they're everything. They just, they just are absolutely, absolutely everything. And on the one hand, I, I grew up in, in this world of you know, reading comic books and being exposed to superheroes and loving superheroes and all of that. And then there was Harriet Tubman, who just was always depicted as this you know, mythical figure. Um, so much of her story sounded like a, you know, a, a superhero to me. You know what I mean? She's at this young age. She takes this courageous stand. Gets hit in the head, you know, with this weight, you know, while trying to protect somebody that, that, that's enslaved. Goes into this deep coma, comes out of the coma, is sent down to work in the timber fields. Has to, you know, work, has her own oxen team, you know, at, at a really, like, I, I want to say like 13, 14, really, really young age. Sent out to work like a man and, or in the way that men were, were worked in that, in that period. And then rises up and, you know, uh, uh, gets her own freedom and then becomes a liberator you know, of other people. And, like, that was a comic book to me. And I mean that in the best sense. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. mean that, like, you know, it was fictional. I mean that in the best. It was like, a, you know, a great... Exactly. It was, it was a superhero. It was super heroic to me. And <laughs> I was saying to Iram behind stage that, you know, if y'all remember this, like, one of the things that was most offensive when um, the Game of Thrones guys... Not offensive. One of the things that was most blinkered and ignorant, because um, it's not about being offended. It's about stupidity and, and, and lack of imagination. When the Game of Thrones guys decided they were going to do Confederate, and I was like, do you know how many times white people in this country have asked themselves, what if the South had won? Yeah. Do you know how many works of fiction 
and comic books and movies and TV. Like, like this is not new terrain. Meanwhile, over here, in the era of, 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 of in, in, in the, uh, the realm of, of black history, there's so many. I mean, we were talking about this yeah. behind the scenes. There's so many stories that, that, that haven't been told. Yeah. Such to the extent that you are in 2019 and you finally have a Harriet Tubman biopic, right? Um, that, it, that it took that long. And so um, when, when I, it just felt to me like as a character, she was so rich, you know? Um, and once, you know, I, I was working, you know, as I, as I was, you know, in some sort of allegorical sense or, or metaphorical sense, not quite direct sense, but working with the Underground Railroad, it, it, it felt natural mm -hmm. to, bring, to bring her in. Yeah, I mean, it was, y'all see, it's going to be, when he brings in Moses, you'll know it. <laughs> and, and he sets it up. I mean, I was just like, what the, because I didn't read any of the reviews or anything. Yeah. I was just like, oh my God, it's Moses, yo. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and so the last question from, from the crowd uh, was, thank you for your voice. What's hmm. next? Oh, man. Uh, I got a seven week tour <laughs> this is week one <laughs> so uh, I'm not really in a position <laughs> to say what's next I got to get through this tour you know um, it's so funny like I you know you, you write something and you know as I, like, like I, as I did you spend 10 years working on it and you feel like you have to give it the, the, the best chance it has to live. And so when they present you with a possibility of a seven-week tour, you're not really thinking <laughs> straight. Yeah, I know a little bit about that. Yeah, no, you're not. You're not. Like, I, I mean, there, there are people, you know, I was talking to Kenyatta about this tonight. I was talking to my wife about this tonight. And, you know, she was saying last night, she was saying, you know, because she, yeah, I've done tours like this before, and this is the first time when she came out for, you know, a chunk. She came out this week, just for one week. She was like, this is tiring. <laughs> she was like, I, I get it. You know what I mean? You think about a tour, you think, you know, different hotel every night, different place. You know what I mean? But like, I, I like my home. I actually like it. <laughs> you know, I, I miss it. I enjoy it. I love it. You know what I mean? And so I got to get through this tour, man. Well, well, let me, let me. And then I can, you know what I'm saying? Well, then I can, not that, I'm very happy to see all of you guys. <laughs> I really am. It's not you that's tiring. You know what I mean? It's the travel and the constant. You know what I mean? It, it, it's a thing. It's a so, real thing. So let me specialize the question. Mm -hmm. Non-fiction or fiction? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I have to say that one of the hard things about non-fiction is... Um, I was, I was very happy with Between the World and Me. I was happy that the number of people read Between the World and Me. But um, the problem with nonfiction is it's easily caricatured in a way that fiction is not. Because to get the fiction, you have to actually read it. And nonfiction, you can read somebody's, you know, excerpted, you know, tweet about it. And then you can say, okay, all right. And, and they're like, um, and maybe this will happen with the book. I, I, I don't know. But... Um, in nonfiction, somebody will say something. It'll just be the narrative of, 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 of the book, whether you, you know, whether that was what you did or not. So um, in my nonfiction, it was after Between the World and Me came out or, or before. It was, you know, um, this is a work of pessimism, period. It's a pessimistic work. Mm -hmm. 
mean, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. You, you, you know what I mean? But um, that, that became the line, whether you read the book or not. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And the book, one of the hard things is it just, it just wasn't allowed to live it, its own life. Maybe, you know, somewhere down the road, if I'm fortunate, you know what I mean? It'll have that. It'll live free of the kind of narrative that was around it. But I always felt like, you know, as a nonfiction writer, you know, I would walk out, and maybe this is still true, you know, with this, but I would, I would walk out, and it wasn't me that was walking out, you know what I mean? Like, I would come out to a stage, and it was everything that had been said that was walking ahead of me, you know what I mean? And so every time I would go, you know, I would do a, you know, a panel like this, and, you know, it would always be, you know, a question would be, you know, and no one has asked me this yet on tour. Maybe someone will. But without fail, I would get the, you know, what do you have to be hopeful about? Can you give the crowd a sense of hope? Can you... And, and I think, I actually think that's because um, in the construct of, of African-American literary identity, people look um, to nonfiction writers in the mold of like, like James Baldwin, and they look for things for them beyond the writing. You know, if you watch Baldwin speak, it's, it's incredible. It's actually, you know, you watch him debate somebody like William F. It is, it is incredible. And I love that, and I feel that, but to me, you know, Baldwin was always, first and foremost, a writer. He was always, as far as I was concerned, the most beautiful essayist of the 20th century, bar none, you know? And that was, like, what I was pulling from him, not, you know, the more public aspect, you know what I mean? Which I think is important and and touches people, but you have to have a thing in you in order to do that. And I don't really, I don't have that thing. You know, I'm not an outwardly facing person in that way, and... I always wanted people to to look at the writing, but the outwardly facing thing became more important. And again, maybe by the end of the tour, I'll be like, I was totally wrong about that. It happens in fiction too. (laughs) But I think because, you know, like you have to like actually read fiction, you have to know what happened in the story. You know, you can't just stand up and talk about beloved. You know what I mean? You can't just, it's pretty clear if you ain't read. Like it becomes immediately clear. You know what I mean? If you you, you haven't read. And so I, I do enjoy that. It's a very, very different interaction with the world. So we'll see. Give it up, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. And make sure y'all get this book. I mean, y'all better get this book and tell your friend to get this book. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.